Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Oh, is Daniel on the line? Yes. All right, great. Uh, this is Roy Paul. I'm filling in as a guest host on the Gift of Freedom. Today we have a special guest, Daniel Brezinoff, who hails from California and is starting a GoFundMe page to raise money to encourage the members of the Electoral College to vote against the wishes of the popular vote in their state in favor of Hillary Clinton. I wanted to have him on the line to talk about what he's doing and how he's trying to gain support. So, Daniel, why don't you start uh, off by giving us a little bit of perspective on your background and sort of your political um, affiliation as it relates to why you decided to start this GoFundMe page. Uh, well, thank you, and thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a social worker by, by trade, by career. Uh, I, in the past, have been an American history teacher, and uh, I've also been a uh, political activist since I was a kid. I actually, in 2007, was nominated by the Green Party uh, here in Southern California to uh, run for Congress in California's 37th District. Had a really good time doing that. Uh, and I've been on and off a Democrat and, and, and a Green, uh, just, just depending on, uh, on where I feel like I can do the most good. And, uh, you know, I watched in dismay as, as Donald Trump certainly the most unqualified candidate ever to, to stand for uh, for national office, uh, just watched in dismay and disbelief as he as he rose to become the uh, apparent president-elect. And on Wednesday night after the election, you know, I, I, I was sitting here pretty despondent with my wife. You know, it just occurred to me that actually the, the American people have never elected our own president. That's not how it works. The Electoral College elects the president, and they don't vote until December 19th. So this is the constitutional path that's left open to preventing Trump from assuming power. And, uh, you know, I put the petition up just thinking it might generate some interesting discussion on my on my, on my my social media pages. Uh, I had no idea it was going to uh, take off like this, but I'm very glad to see the response. So that there was a goal of... $35,000 that you were trying to raise. You're about uh, 20-some-odd thousand. I think $28,000, $29,000 of the way there. Um, talk about your strategy 
um, now with the Electoral College members, and then after you hopefully raise the thirty-five thousand dollars. Well, I don't, I don't know if our strategy will change, but uh, the more money we raise, the wider reach we're going <laughs> to, excuse me, be able to have. Uh, you know, this is an unusual campaign. You know, I've been involved in a lot of uh, political campaigns on on particular issues, ballot propositions, and and for candidates. And this is just a strange animal. I, I can't think of anyone or any movement that petitioned the electoral college. I can't remember any efforts ever to to encourage conscientious electors or free electors. And so everyone I've talked to, all the strategists. Uh, and really experienced people in, in political campaigns. Everybody's kind of scratching their heads and not really sure what the best approach is. There's just no model for it. So, uh, you know, what we think is the louder this uh, message gets, the more people, uh, the more Americans hear it, uh, then the more likely the electors are going to hear it and, uh, and feel some pressure to really deliberate. You know, and uh, that's what we're really asking them to do is to, to deliberate carefully. It's not an automatic process where they just have to vote exactly how their state's majority told them to. That's not what the Constitution requires of them. So we really just want them to deliberate. So we're trying to get our message out in various ways. Uh, Obviously, we're asking people to share the petition on social media. We're also trying to move to more traditional platforms like television. I've been on on a few uh, broadcast shows and on NPR uh, where we're trying to amplify the message that way. We're asking people to write letters to the editor. We're looking at uh, buying space in some of the big newspapers in these uh, states that Trump uh, that Trump has more uh, electors or has has been delegated to the electors, like uh, like Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, North Carolina, taking taking out some ad space in these newspapers to speak directly to the electors. And that's not just going to be me speaking, but we have a, a slate of Academics, uh, some some politicians, some of the electors themselves, who will uh, who have expressed interest in signing on to a letter, uh, and so we'll be doing that. Uh, and then we're we're supporting uh, direct actions, protests in the in the state capitals on December nineteenth, uh, the day the electors vote. Right. So the thirty-five thousand dollars that was just sort of an arbitrary number. There was no fixed budget in terms of specific uh, actions that you were going to do. Well, I wouldn't say it was arbitrary. I mean, I sat, you know, I have a, a little team working with me, and I sat down with my my finance person, uh, who's a, a, fu- a professional fundraiser and a a uh, financial planner, and who actually worked with me on my congressional campaign. And uh, and so, you know, we, we we budgeted. I mean, we're we're budgeting for office space. We're budgeting for advertisement in newspapers. We needed a bigger server for our website because every time we uh, send an email to the petition signers and ask them to come to the website to take a particular action or, or, or whatever, it crashes our server. So every time we've had to get a bigger server, we just have so many people that are following us. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the 35,000 is, is basically uh, for having a basic structure of an organization with an office with, with a web presence, as well as a little bit of advertising budget. And uh, we'd like to be able to pay a lawyer. You know, we haven't really sat down with a lawyer at this point. We'd like to be talking to a lawyer because we are raising money and uh, and engaging in political activity. So we want to make sure we do that all all uh, correctly. Um, so that's that's what the money is for. And I think you know if we reach thirty five thousand dollars, 
we uh, will say thank you, and then we're going to raise our goal because the more money we can raise, uh, the more newspapers we're going to be able to uh, advertise in and the louder this message will be. Still there? Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I saw that you posted that you were moving from a part-time position with this campaign into a more full-time role. Uh, is part of any of that $35,000 going to find salaries or going to organizers like you? Not yet. I mean, to be honest, we haven't even touched it. It's just sitting there. Uh, you know, I quit my job, and so I asked friends and family to help me out. I mean, I have some side gigs. I teach, and I'm a social worker, so I, I, I'm able to have a little bit of income, but, you know, I gave up the big chunk of my income uh to pursue this. So I reached out to friends and family to help with that element. I'm not asking the public to support me. Uh, the money that we raise from the public, uh, our intention is to put that towards the operations of this organization and the campaign itself. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Electoral College and the reason behind why it was founded. Um, there are a lot of people who uh, have in the past, including Donald Trump, expressed dismay over the, the electoral process. Um, I think this is the first time that I can remember where there is such an uproar about the results based on the electoral college that there is this sort of groundswell of opposition uh, to get right. the electoral college members to, to switch their votes. But uh, in terms of the founding fathers and why it was founded, um, a lot of people tend to have accepted this notion that if we elected our president solely on the popular vote, you would have the candidates running in places like California and New York to boost up the popular vote numbers, and places like Wisconsin uh, and other small Iowa states would, would not really see the result of a campaign structure apparatus in their state because everyone would just go to California, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, and Texas. Um, so... I think even though there's within the political structure, there's a lot of people who have expressed dismay. They, they tend to all agree that that principle of having the presidential candidates campaign in states that otherwise would not receive any attention um, is a reasonable uh, assumption to make, to make the president represent the wholeness of the United States of America. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Uh, well, I, I disagree. I disagree very strongly, and I appreciate you asking that because it probably is the most common response that that we've gotten. And I think there, you know, there are some people who agree with it, but I think there are many people who disagree. And if you look at constitutional scholars, legal scholars nowadays, most of them don't agree with that. And so uh, I'll, I'll say why I think that that argument doesn't ultimately hold up. First of all, in our current system. Uh, a very small number of states get all the attention. We call those the swing states. So nobody comes to campaign in California. Nobody campaigns in Texas. Certainly nobody goes to campaign in Wyoming or Idaho or Alaska. I mean, they may go there to do a little fundraising or for a photo op, but they're not aiming their message at those voters. They're not sitting down talking with those voters. Uh, so most states are ignored, and that includes the states where most of the people are. And uh, I think that should offend us as Americans. We want uh, the places where most of the people are to get the attention. Uh, so first of all, in our current system, we're ignoring the vast majority of Americans and focusing on a 
small number of swing states. And there's certainly nothing in the Constitution that says our election system should work this way, that, that, that presidents should campaign in the places where uh, it happens to be the closest and, and, and the, the, the most uh, even split. That, that doesn't really make any sense. It certainly was not what our framers intended. Second of all, uh, you know, you could add up all the votes in California, Texas, and New York, and you still would not come close to a majority of votes. And so in a national popular vote, candidates would certainly have to campaign in other places. And in fact, it would put every single vote in the United States in play. So if I thought I could go win 80% of the votes in Wyoming, you know, that that's, could be 100,000 votes or something like that. And that could put me over the top. It actually could be campaigning in a small state that would that would make the difference uh, with some uh, with in a certain campaign. And you know, let's remember, you know, these folks are flying all over the place. They also have access to digital media. It's not as if they have to go physically to these places over and over. This isn't uh, you know whistle stop campaigning like they did 150 years ago. It's rather easy actually to reach any particular area of the country. And so just because you're out in a rural area, far away from population centers, doesn't mean that it's such a big pain for the campaigns to reach you. And so your votes would be in play. More votes would be in play. Every vote would be in play instead of just these swing state votes. As it stands now, people know if you're not in a swing state, your vote means nothing. You may as well not even show up to the polls. We know who your state is going to win. And it doesn't matter if Trump wins Texas by one vote or if Trump wins Texas by a million votes he gets all 38 of the electors. And so to be a Democrat in Texas or a Republican in California, your vote's not in place. So this would put more votes in play, and they would certainly have to campaign outside the population census. I would also point out that in the, at the founding of the country, the founders did not say, we want to protect the small states from the large population census. That's not what they said. What they said is something very specific. We want to protect slavery from northern abolitionism. And so... That's not a general principle about protecting small states. It's a very particular concern that no longer exists, right? We're not trying to protect slavery anymore. So that doesn't exist anymore. And the fact is, just because two states are small doesn't mean they have anything in common. The voters of Rhode Island, when they vote, they each get an extra two and a half votes tacked on to their vote. So they go to the they go to the poll, they vote, and that's three and a half votes for president. Uh, yet Rhode Island is a city. I mean, Rhode Island is almost entirely Providence. That's, that's what Rhode Island is. It doesn't have these vast outlying rural areas. It's entirely a city. And it's right next door to another small state, Connecticut, that is also highly urbanized. There certainly are some rural suburban areas there, but many big cities in Connecticut. It's part of the, the, you know, the, the New York megalopolis over there. And so those two states, highly democratic, highly urbanized, small, they get extra votes. Over here, Alaska, Wyoming, Idaho, Republican states, vast emptiness, mostly wilderness, barely anyone lives there, and they're getting the same treatment that Rhode Island and Connecticut get, even though their interests are totally different. So we're not protecting any particular political interests with this. It's actually very arbitrary. We're just saying if you happen to live in a small state, whether it's urban population center like Rhode Island or wilderness like Alaska, we're going to give you extra votes. Yet the people in Texas who live out in the middle of nowhere 
in the in the panhandle in wet in out by Odessa or in the middle of the state. When I, I should say the middle of nowhere, I don't. I just mean they live in very underpopulated areas, right? Those folks are getting shafted. You, you're, their votes count for about one quarter of the votes just in neighboring Arkansas and Oklahoma. And that's true whether you live in a rural area of Texas or in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. So, again, this really doesn't make any sense, this idea that because I live in a small state, I have to get extra votes. It just makes no sense. And it doesn't, it doesn't protect any particular political interest. It doesn't fit with our Constitution's uh, intent, our, our founding fathers' intention. And... Uh, it doesn't make sure that more Americans participate in presidential elections. In fact, it greatly limits participation. A national popular vote would bring every vote into play. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. It's, it's not a question that uh, is widely popular to ask, but there's a reason for it. Uh, are, are you prepared to state who you actually voted for for president? Uh, I I mean, is it, does that matter much? I well, the, the, it goes it goes it goes to a larger point that I want to bring up. It's not pertinent to your answer, but I'm just curious. I mean, I'd rather keep that to myself. <laughs> okay. okay, and and, and so my my question then is this: When uh, I was going to be interviewing you, I put this out there, and I wanted to get some feedback from friends, many of whom were on different political spectrums, and I wanted to get their feedback. And uh, one person said to me, look, we have a current system. We've seen this before with Al Gore, who lost the, pop- who lost the electoral college but got the popular vote. And everyone accepts that this is the system that we have, the electoral college. There is now the uh, third-party movement with Jill Stein to have voter recounts. And many of the people, not all of them, but many of the people who are pushing either a recount or uh, the switching of the Electoral College members uh, from the popular votes in the state are from the third-party apparatus of our system. I had a friend say to me today, it seems as if their problem is with the system, the Electoral College system, instead of putting their energies and to having the Electoral College members switch their votes, which they are not legally bound, we know that they're not, to vote for the popular vote-getter in their state, why not have them take their efforts with abolishing the Electoral College? Well, look, I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, we're not going to abolish the Electoral College before December 19th. So, you know, I think that uh, after whoever's inaugurated is inaugurated. Uh, I, I mean, I hope that this momentum translates into a push to reform the Electoral College. Uh, I, I absolutely support that. But right now, this is the system we have. And so while that system has this undemocratic aspect of taking the national popular vote but throwing it out and instead awarding extra votes to people in small states, it also has another undemocratic aspect, and that is that the electors can vote any way they want. Well, this year, they have the chance, through that power, to make the whole thing more democratic. So, you know, they can say, we're going to pick national popular vote winner. And that's completely within uh, the realm of their constitutional mandate. So, you know, 
Yes, I think it's an undemocratic system. Yes, we should reform it. But right now, this is the system we have. And to keep Trump out of the White House, this is a constitutional path that, uh, that the United States could take. Well, then let well, me submit to you. We have callers on yeah. the line. All right. We'll get to the callers in just one second. Um, but, but let's talk about that constitutional path, because I think a lot of you, a lot of listeners, and a lot of people who've been watching this uh, play out um, are, are quite curious. Let's say, for example, your campaign is successful. You raise the 35000 and the mass of people are able to persuade the Electoral College members to switch their votes. They vote for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump doesn't have the electoral votes he needs to become president. Many elect constitutional attorneys then say that Donald Trump has a very easy and simple legal case that could go up to the Supreme Court charging that there's no legal precedent for what had happened. Uh, he will then control the Supreme Court, right? And it will get overturned anyway. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, I, I don't think he would have a case. It's very clear and uh, that the electors can vote any way they wish. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I think he would have no, no case and they would go nowhere. Uh, he, you know, wouldn't be in control of the Supreme Court because he wouldn't be the president. Uh, as it stands, the Supreme Court is, de- is deadlocked at four to four. Uh, of course, I have no idea what what John Roberts uh, thinks of this. I have no idea what what any of the Supreme Court justices think of this uh, personally. But but there, there's no uh, indication anywhere in American jurisprudence or in the Constitution that uh, a president could complain that the electors ignore their states majority votes, uh, particularly uh, because in 21 states, there are no laws like that. In Texas, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Indiana, in Louisiana, and a, and a handful of others, uh, there's, the, the law is silent on this matter. And so there's no question the electors could switch their votes. But, but even if all the conscientious electors came from those states where there is some legal attempt to bind them, to their state's majority vote, uh, I still say that Trump would have no case. There's just there's just nothing you can point to anywhere in, in American law that 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 says the electors must vote uh, with their state's majority uh, because uh, if they if, if they did have to, why would we have electors? Why wouldn't we just tally up the votes, the electoral votes, award them to the candidates? That what would be the point of having these 538 people travel to their state capital? in many cases in snowstorms, and fill out a ballot and then submit it and it goes to Congress and then Congress, it doesn't make any sense. We would just call it on November 8th. This person won the electoral vote, that's it. So it's clear they can vote any way they wish and they, he, would, he would have no case. Okay, fair point. Let's go to one of the callers. Well, let me, let me just... I'm not hearing the caller. It got cut off. Hello? Is the caller there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, first of all, like, there's a couple of things that you're sort of going across that you're not addressing. Number one, that America is a federal republic that's a union of states, and each state has its own rights and semblance. So the fact of the matter is we do have a popular vote. It's only done on a state level. And so... Your whole argument doesn't apply because you're fundamentally not not addressing what our country actually is. And I see this a lot. People keep talking about America as one big nation when it's a union of, of separate states. 
Well, uh, sir, uh, we solved that in 1865. Uh, that's no longer the case. We are one nation. The states are not a loo- we're not a loose confederation of sovereign states. Uh, that's just not how it is anymore. That that was resolved by the Civil War. But even if you make that argument, it doesn't change the fact that the electors can vote for anyone they wish. The founders did not see uh, the vote of the people as really mattering much. They thought of the president as being chosen by the state to lead a federation of the state. And, uh, and that's precisely why... There's a lot, of, a lot of background noise. I can't really speak when that's going on. Thanks. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. That, that's precisely why they gave the electors the, the right to vote however they want and why they told the states, hey, you can choose to send these electors any way you want. We have nothing to say about how you pick these electors. They could be appointed by the governor, the state legislature. It doesn't even have to be a people's vote. But right. I think that but, 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 you, but I you think that you, most you, you Americans canceled your own point already, sir, because your whole no, point no. of this thing is as a conscious objector, as if these electors have somehow are moved from a moral standpoint to not elect Trump. Let's just address that right out the gate. This is a whole liberal media construct in the first place. Because most of the issues of when it comes to Trump are just stuff that's not even real. For example, on immigration. The Democrats in 1995 wanted to build a wall and wanted to enforce immigration. Hillary Clinton herself was on record wanting to build a wall in 2006. So nothing Trump is presenting Sir, from I've a said policy standpoint is, is – I've said nothing about the wall. Hold on. Let, 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 let's stay with your first point, and then I'm happy to talk about Donald Trump and why he's a dangerous candidate. But uh, so first of all, at the, again, at the founding of the republic, the, the states were told, you can send these electors any way you want. It's not the American people who are electing their president. It's the electors who elect them, okay? So if we're going to say that that's the way we're doing it, then, then I'm, perfectly on, I'm on perfectly solid ground. The electors can vote for anyone they want. How the people in their state voted doesn't matter under our Constitution. It's the state electors who vote for president. And so I'm imploring them to vote, to vote the way I want them to vote. I have every right to do that, and they have every right to do it as well. They are not bound by the people's vote in the state. But now if you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, what about the people's will? Well, then the people's will in the United States is for Mrs. Clinton. The fact is, in the Civil War, because of the uh, triumph of federal sovereignty, because of the 14th Amendment that says, hey, it's a federal right to vote, we are no longer a loose confederation of sovereign states. We haven't been for more than 100 years, 150 years. So, and, and most people get that. That's an antiquated system. We elect our senators directly. The state legislatures don't elect them. We've changed as a nation. We are one nation, indivisible. Remember that little poem we all say? So, I, I, again, you, you can say that the system was put in as a federalist system to give the rights to the state, but that only supports what I'm saying. The electors can vote for anyone they want. Or you can say the people's vote should matter. Well, in that case, Hillary Clinton won the majority vote. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, you have to respect the people's vote over here, and therefore the the, the electors have to vote the way the states voted. But then you're also going to say, oh, we're a republic, we're not a democracy. Well, then in that case, the electors can vote for anyone they want. That's how the founders envisioned it. Now, why should they vote against Trump? I ain't saying anything about the wall, okay? He's dangerous to the Constitution because he doesn't understand the Constitution and he doesn't respect the Constitution. He's talked about using civil liability laws 
to sue reporters who criticize him. He's talked about making people register with the federal government based on their religion. That's very dangerous. He'd be the first president ever who's never held an office of public trust. Every other president has served in the public trust before assuming the title of commander-in-chief. Now, you think you can't even get a job at jack-in-the-box without something on your resume. This guy's going to be president of the United States, and he's never served in a public office. That's just the kind of thing that would make our founding fathers very nervous. And so that's why I would like the electors to vote against him. But they don't have to. I'm not saying that they have some legal obligation to. I think it's the right thing to do. Anyone can make the case that, no, they should go ahead and vote for Trump. But what you can't do is tell me that I'm somehow wrong based on our system of government. This is our system of government. They can vote for anyone they want. Wonderful, Daniel. A caller, 612, do not hang up. We have another call on the line, 917. Roy, you're still on the line, but you have a lot of background noise. So I keep uh, turning on your mic, but I keep hearing the noise. So you can handle it. So 917, you're on the line. 917, you don't have anything to say? Okay, what about 310, we have you. Okay. Your phone is, okay. Okay, Roy, you're back on. All right, um, I want you to talk about how, for those who may not know, we try to educate people as much as possible, uh, how someone becomes a member of the Electoral College. Uh, well, it's different in every state, but in general, they're appointed by their parties, by their political parties. That's interesting. So these are members who come from the Democratic or Republican establishment. Correct. Okay. I've heard, um, I've heard them called. I've heard them called apparatchi <laughs> by some people. <laughs> you know, but they're they're party loyalists, and that and that makes our job, you know. That much harder. Well, that makes your job much harder because these are people who, are, who if, even if they go against the will of the, the voters, they're, they're, they have to then, you know, look at the party apparatus who elected them to be there in the first place. Yes, that's, that's right. And uh, what's very interesting to, to us is that uh, this is not how the framers intended it. They, they didn't believe in political parties. Uh, you know, these, these folks were supposed to represent the state and not be uh, loyal to political parties. That's why one of the only requirements uh, for an elector is that they are not an elected official. Uh, they, they, Hamilton and Madison were emphatic about this, that they could not be elected officials. Now, why would they do that? Well, it's because they wanted them to deliberate and reflect, and that, that's the words of Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, to deliberate and to reflect. In, in Federalist Paper 1, and in number 68, he, he talks about this. And, you know, if they're, if they're partisan, then that's what they're going to do. They're going to just vote based on their party's leanings rather than thinking about what's good for their state and what's good for the republic. Yeah, I had a friend on uh, election night when the results were announced that Donald Trump had won the presidency. A very staunch Democratic friend blame. The third-party people, you know, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, and those who voted for them, because essentially within that electoral process system, there are no Libertarian or Green Party members. 
Uh, and theoretically, if you look at the populist vote in the state, it is almost impossible for one of those third-party candidates to get enough votes as a majority to get any electoral college votes, yet they're allowed to take away votes from the Democratic or the Republican candidate. And so what do you say then to, to those who say, look, if you want to look at who caused the election, it's you know, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson and the people who voted for them, because there's no legal way they could have won the presidency. They took votes away from the Democratic candidate. And in every state where there was a deficit for Hillary Clinton, it could have been made up with the votes that went to Gary Johnson or Jill Stein. Yeah, but that assumes that those people would, would pick her over Trump. I mean, I think probably a lot of those Gary Johnson voters would, would pick, you know, would pick Trump or, or over Hillary or, or just stay home. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I'm not a fan of that argument. Yeah. I think, well, you, you also, know, you also at one point. I'm sorry? You also at one point voted Green Party. That's part of why I asked if you were prepared to ask, uh, answer who you voted I for. Ha- I, have, I, have, I, have, I have voted Green uh, in the past. And I think, you know, if you know someone's particular political leanings, then you have a better shot at making a case. Like, look, I know you're, I know you're a, a liberal. I know you think that Hillary's too centrist, and so you're going to vote for uh, Jill, Jill Stein or, or whatever, but... Here's what the consequences would be. Wanna, could you could you vote for Mrs. Clinton and move us a little farther to the left? And I mean, you know, you might go to make that case to somebody, uh, but uh, I think in general, just speaking to third-party voters as a group, uh, I, I don't I don't I don't really buy that argument because you know they they have to vote for someone that they can support, and uh, you know if they don't support Mrs. Clinton, they're not they're not going to vote for her. Okay. Well, let's try the caller 612. Yep. All right. You're back on 612. Yes, you're on. Yeah, thank you. I was going to also Mm -hmm. say, um, I just think that in a way this is almost changing the rules after the the game is finished in the sense that how do we know that the turnout would have been different had the rules been changed beforehand? For example, if people knew beforehand that we weren't going with the Electoral College, we're going to go with a popular vote, over the entire country, who's to say that there would have been the turnout would have been different, whether it be plus negative for either side? Who's to know that? And to call that and to now change it after the fact is kind of ridiculous. And if these electors living well, in but, Pennsylvania or Ohio or Wisconsin decide to go and change and go opposite, you're going to have a massive tumult within those states because the people in those states are going to say. We voted based on the understanding that we were going to vote on a state-by-state system. And we came out and voted, and our state voted for X candidate. And now for you to turn around and then flip it on us, the, you, you talk about having a, a revolt. I mean, there would be a – we would have we would have political problems for the next four years. It would, no one, I mean, it would be insane. I mean, think about that. Well, sir, but the thing is, the rules are that the electors vote for anyone they want to. And if people make an assumption that they're going to vote the way their state tells them to, that's on the people making the assumption. A campaign strategy does not change the Constitution. The Constitution says the electors vote for who they want to. So, you know, if anybody's saying that they're going to be violent or revolt, I mean, that to me, that's criminal. This is the system that we have. And just because nobody's used it this way before doesn't make it any less constitutional 
It's totally legal. You know, you look at what the Republican Party has done with Merrick Garland. Uh, our presidents have a right and indeed a mandate to fill the Supreme Court and make Supreme Court appointments. And the Senate's supposed to advise and consent, not obstruct for a but year. But he could have still appointed him. Well, I, that maybe that's a constitutional question, and I wish that he would. And if, if on December 19th, uh, Mr. Trump really does get a majority of electoral votes, uh, you know, we will be looking very carefully at whether uh, that's going to be the next best use of our, of our energy is to, to try to get him to make that recess appointment. But the fact is the Senate has obstructed that for about a year, and that's unprecedented in American history. Talk about changing the rules. The rules are the president appoints someone, the Senate gives them a fair hearing, and then we have either they, they leave and we get somebody else, or they're appointed, and we have a nine-member Supreme Court, not a 4-4 tie. Uh, and the Senate's changed the rules, too, haven't they? Well, no. What they're doing is they're employing the rules in a way that no one's done before. But they're on solid constitutional ground, even though I object uh, to what they're doing. And, and this is the same thing. Uh, never in American history has the Senate obstructed a Supreme Court appointment like this, and never in American history have the electors changed their votes to to change the outcome of an election, but they're both constitutional. Okay. Uh, we have a call of 917. You're on the line? Nothing. Okay, go ahead, Roy. All right. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to you about an article that I read. Um, I believe it was on PBS, and they had a lot of legal experts talking about the path to where your campaign can be successful. And they pointed to the fact that you need to have a coordinated effort in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that will take Donald Trump from 290 down 30, and he'll have less than 10 to make up for the electoral votes that he needs to 270. Have you coordinated your strategy specifically to the state that you would need, or you're just sort of making it a very broad pitch to the electoral college members? Uh, well, a, a little bit of both. Uh, Pennsylvania is definitely one of the states we're most focused on, along with uh, Texas, Georgia, and Arizona. The reason those four is that they're the biggest of the states that don't have any penalties for uh, for conscientious electors. Now, a lot of the scholars we've talked to have said that they think those states are unconstitutional and wouldn't stand up in court, and you know, so so that all the states really have free electors despite what their statutes say. But uh, you know. We think for an elector in that position, they've, they've got to be a little more uncomfortable uh, if there's a state law. So we focus more on Texas, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona as the four biggest free elector states. Uh, but, yes, we are making some efforts in, in all of the states. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, there's no precedent for this campaign. There's no blueprint, playbook. Um so, you know, we're, we're trying to look at also every elector individually and see who might be most likely to uh, stand with us, who, people who are, you know, were never Trump, people who supported another candidate, people who have family members who are Democrats, things like that, uh, may be more likely to switch their vote. Yeah, and, and within those states, the Electoral College members, are they split 50-50 Republican and Democrat? Uh, and do you need a majority to overturn the entire electoral map in that state? How does that work? No, it, it, what happens is uh, 
the, uh, the on election night, the, the electoral votes are delegated to the, to the party, really, that, that has won the, the majority in all the winner-take-all states, which is all the states but Nebraska and Maine, right? So then on uh, December 13th, the actual electors are certified at the state level. Or that's the deadline. Many of the states have already have already done it. And so th- those electors are individual people, uh, and they're all going to be from the same political party in the winter dates. And then each elector can, can vote however they want. They vote independently. They you know, and, and, and for the most part, those are secret ballots. But you, so you don't need a majority. You need a majority of those in the majority of the party to vote against. It's a, it, it just it just needs to be thirty eight electors uh, to to vote for uh, Mrs. Clinton, and she would win. If it's th- if thirty seven of Trump's delegated electors. Uh, just vote for anyone else, and it would go to the House of Representatives because he would no no longer have a majority. But those those thirty seven can come from all from one state. They can come from all the thirty one states that uh, that that Trump has been awarded. So you know if there's thirty eight electors in Texas, if they all voted for Mrs. Clinton, she would win. But you know you could take ten from Pennsylvania, three from Indiana, two from Louisiana, whatever. It doesn't matter. All right, so it's a cumulative effort. Now, let me ask you, is it your petition drive that I saw was vowing to pay for the fines for the electors who face fines? You know, we've said that we'd like to, we'd be willing to help with that. Uh, and there, there are several efforts to raise money for that. Uh, you know, so that's, again, that's I, different from your campaign, from the GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, there are separate, there are other people who are who are who have just focused on raising money for any. Uh, conscientious electors to, to to pay their fines. You know, I can't make a promise that I'm going to pay for all their legal costs. I mean, what if somebody gets a thousand fine and then they decide to hire high-priced lawyers and take it all the way to the Supreme Court? I mean, that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I, I have no ability to raise that kind of money, so I'm not saying anything like that. But you know, if somebody got fined a thousand dollars, it was one guy and that was it. He just wanted to pay the fine. Uh, I, I I think we'd be glad to help with that. I mean, I want to make sure that you know I. People have told me, oh, that's a bribe, and I, that doesn't seem like a bribe to me, but, I, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm but you don't know bribe what those anyone. fines or costs would be. I, I, well, I, I, don't, I don't know in every state, but they're small. I, you know, I'm certainly not trying to bribe anyone. I'm not trying to get anybody to change their vote because they're getting paid. But if someone were really wanting to vote against Trump, but they were just afraid they couldn't pay the fine, I think it's reasonable to let them know, hey, you know, you have supporters that would probably come and come and pay your fine. But again, we're focused on mostly on the states where there are no laws of, about this, and, and, and B, constitutional scholars think that those fines probably won't hold up in court. That's what we're right. uh, yeah, yeah, let, Let's talk a little bit about the, the recount efforts in Joe Stein. It was just broke today that Hillary Clinton was going to join the recount effort. Um, how does that aid or help in, 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 in the overall picture? If they're, like in Wisconsin, they're trying, they, they push for a recount, they're going to do it. It's the first time they've ever done it in state's history. And there are varying accounts of whether or not there was fraudulent activity that took place that might sway the, the ultimate outcome uh, of the election. What's your entire feelings about that whole situation? Well, I guess I would say that 
three things. First, uh, I definitely believe that uh, there are many voting irregularities in the United States, some, some unintentional and some perhaps intentional. And uh, I've, I've long believed that those favor Republicans. Uh, I was disappointed when Mr. Trump said he wouldn't accept the election results, that everyone simply uh, attacked him rather than really getting into a conversation about that because uh, I don't want to see either party give up their right to question election results. We know there are major voting irregularities. We know people are turned away from the polls. We know cross-checking is removing voters' names illegally from the registry. We know that hundreds of polling places, primarily in African-American communities throughout the South, were closed uh, between the last presidential election and this one. So we we know there's voter suppression happening. I've heard uh, right-wing sources say that illegal immigrants are voting. I don't see any evidence that that's happening. But if it's happening, then that should be discussed too. So if a recount can reveal some of that, uh, if an audit can reveal some of that, that's good. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm glad to see the Clinton campaign jumping in. I'm, uh, we've all been wondering what happened to her over the last few uh, uh, two weeks. She sort of disappeared. So I'm glad to see that she's jumping in with uh, Dr. Stein's efforts and, and participating. And then the third thing, of course, is that if, if some of these numbers change and one of these states flips, uh, our task in in uh, in winning at the electoral college level is made much easier. You know, uh, in fact, if if Pennsylvania and Michigan flip, we're, we're two votes away uh, after that. So uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the recount efforts, and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, we want to check for another caller. Great. Any more callers? All, All right. right. Um, Roy? Yeah? Roy, you go ahead. Any more questions? Uh, no, if we don't have any more callers, I was going to give Daniel an opportunity to sort of recap uh, if he wanted to and then say any last-minute uh, words. Yeah, thanks. Well, I would just say that, you know, the Electoral College is, uh, we think is a dated and antiquated system, but it's the one we've got, and we have an opportunity this year to uh, accomplish two important uh, goals. One, keep keep a very dangerous demagogue who doesn't understand the Constitution out of the White House, and two, uh, restore the popular vote. Uh, Mrs. Clinton is going to win by more than two million. Uh, No presidential candidate has gotten this many uh, votes up until the last couple elections. It would make her her one of the most popular political candidates actually in history, and uh, and so the Electoral College can, uh, can vote for anyone they want, if people don't like that, then we should be talking about electoral college reform. But uh, to, to me, the main problem with electors voting any way they want is that they can undermine the popular will. This year, they have the chance to restore the popular will. So uh, mm-hmm. that's what we're advocating for. We've got 4.6 million people that support this, uh, as well as uh, many scholars and some of the uh, Democratic electors themselves have spoken in support of this idea, and so um, we're just going to take it all the way to December 19th. Okay. Any contact information you want to share with us, your website, and phone numbers? and Yeah, we would just encourage people to go to electoralcollegepetition.com, electoralcollegepetition.com. 
They can also follow us on Facebook uh, at Electoral College Petition and on Twitter at EC Petition. Uh, and it always helps to have uh, the social media followers and have people sharing uh, the petition. There's still a lot of people that don't know about this, so I would just encourage everyone to, to spread it around. And, uh, and let's see if we can't get those numbers a little higher before December 19th. Okay, Ryan. All right, sounds good. Ben, Brennan, and all, thank you so much, and we hope you uh, have great success with your efforts. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.